welcome back to Anime on the Sea to Sky, episode 23. Um, I don't know, I was kind of just laying about trying to get this uh, episode, not necessarily script, but everything lined up, going together, and then I had a little bit of a surprise at my door, considering that last week, I ended up uh, going through one of the catalogs of one of my local diners, and they said they were going to be having a poutine night. Uh... In the week after, which in this case would be this week. And so I called in, I ordered that in for a specific night for dinner, and completely forgot about it, considering that I was just settling down and picking out articles and going through, and just after having finished a cup of coffee and then getting a glass of water to go and prepare, just so I could at least get something of a form of readiness to get this episode underway on the recording, I hear a doorbell, and they go through, and they drop off a nice brown bag where inside the contents are this really nice and voluptuous corned beef poutine. And I thought, wow, this is a nice surprise, considering that I totally forgot about it, but legitimately, if I decide to go and consume this right away, then I know that I'm going to be completely incapacitated for the rest of the night, and any form of expose or podcast recording that I decide to do after this meal is going to be completely incoherent in an entire mumble fest of me trying to at least put any sort of thoughts together with gravy and curds and starch running through my veins. So thankfully I was able to have cooler heads prevail, take a couple of bites, and then immediately stick it in the fridge. And even though I know it is it <laughs> even though I know that it's going to be soggy once I go back to it either late in the night or if I decide to take it through for a meal tomorrow, it's not going to be the same as what I thought. But I don't know. That's just kind of the random uh, bits and pieces of just surprises that kind of go through your other day, for better or worse. But now that we're already two minutes into this recording, I think it might be a good idea to actually go through and talk about what everybody else has come here for. And that is anime news leading in for the past two weeks, considering that we are now a week into June of 2021. And at least... I know that everybody has already been hearing about JoJo's Part 6 already being announced in Stone Ocean, with everybody being incredibly excited about how, when that's going to pop up. But for me in particular, a Part 6 that I didn't necessarily expect that was going to happen, but I'm more than glad enough to find out that it did, is that Lupin Third is going to be getting a Part 6 anime adaptation in celebration of the 50th anniversary of the Lupin Third franchise, as Eiji Suganama is going to set and direct the series at TMS Entertainment. Now, in particular for me, I have not seen Lupin's parts 1, 2, and 3. I have not gone back that far, and I haven't necessarily decided to take upon the ridiculous endeavor of hundreds upon hundreds of different Lupin animations and episodes, even though I know a handful of them had some form of touch and cuts done by Hayao Miyazaki himself. I still can't really put it upon myself to go through and deep and delve that deeply into what the franchise is as a whole. So at this point, the only Lupin the third pieces of the franchise that I have watched are the two OVAs, which would be Goemon's Blood Spray and Mugen's Bullet something. I would actually have to get back to you on that, but essentially like those two OVAs that are focused entirely on Mugen and Jigen, as well as the television series The Woman Called Fujiko Mine, which I recently finished only a couple of weeks ago, and it's not necessarily one of the better options that went through, especially considering that it was 13 episodes long in comparison to just being a movie, but I would say it still has its place, and Sayamoto did an excellent job in terms of the style and the direction of that series. It's not kind of much of a prequel, but just kind of a handful of stories that were relating around um, Fujiko's own past 
and what her relation ultimately is to Lupin. Um, but besides those, the two films that I've seen were, of course, um, Castle of Cagliostro. Honestly, one of my favorite Miyazaki works to date, even though I don't think it was a Ghibli picture, but it was definitely directed by Hayao Miyazaki as his directorial debut. And you will be very, very hard-pressed to find a stronger debut from a director of that caliber, and it was more than enough of a show of things to come. And then, most recently, one of the other pieces of uh, Lupin films that I ended up watching that was earlier than that was the Fuku Conspiracy, which was also incredibly fun, even though it was definitely a different time for the Lupin series. It was still more than enough of an entertaining jostle to try and get myself more in tune with what the more classical look of Lupin was about. And of course, I've seen Lupin's part four and five, at least, in the most recent sets, so whenever this sixth part comes out, I will definitely welcome it with open arms. Now, most recently, kind of questionable in my regard, but considering that the States has been moving forward a lot more in terms of not necessarily a herd immunity, but also incredibly good at getting the majority of their doses are for the vaccine, Otakon 2021 is going to be happening inside of Washington, D.C. from August 6th to 8th, and it will require masks but it will not require proof of vaccination. And so the staff confirmed that the in-person event is actually going to be happening and will require masks in most settings, but will not require that kind of proof. Although they say it highly recommends all eligible individuals are vaccinated if attending, which probably should have, which, I don't know, it's definitely a much better thing where it's like, oh yeah, no, it is a much better idea to actually have this vaccine, but we're not going to check. <laughs> so just come on through. Which is definitely why I'm a little concerned, even though I'm definitely not in living inside of the States, and I'm going to be more than happy enough to see conventions return to Canada once those actually start moving forward next year, but I definitely think that this is a little too quick. Like, there's not going to be any international guests appearing this year, considering that mandatory quarantine requirements will also be stated into effect, and staff have stated that other possible changes will include shortened hours and shortened high-traffic tra events such as the Otakon dance, and Otakon is dedicated to the safety of its membership and will be following any CDC and local guidelines that may still be in effect at the time of the convention. I don't know. I was totally expecting them to hold off on any more major events in the summer, and yeah, this is, this is going to be taking place at the end in August. I just still think it's a little too early. I will definitely be incredibly happy once these kinds of conventions return to us. I am more than happy, though, of waiting until 2022 for any more of those events to kind of take place. So, I don't know, we're just going to have to grit our teeth and just kind of see what happens in the aftermath of this kind of event. And so I guess I was really curious, but also a little intrigued to see, like, what kind of influence... Uh, Chinese streaming has on anime production schedules, considering that there are a handful of productions that have been taking place over the past couple of years that are going into China as well, but whenever those are being taken in and licensed and produced by that kind of a streaming service, a lot of, all of them must have all of their episodes completed within three months in advance for a content check, which is definitely insidious in nature by terms but it's just really awkward especially when you're trying to go through because it doesn't give anybody extra time maybe if it's done much further in advance they'll actually be able to go through and reorganize these kinds of scheduling issues but the fact that they would have the majority the vast majority if not all of those entire episodes done before the three-month gap Sounds normal in practice, but definitely not as natural whenever it's the Chinese influence, like, regulating the majority of the productions that they go through. 
And so, by his words for the director Shinji Takamatsu, anime these days have a long production period and it's difficult to anticipate when it peaks. It used to be busiest during the broadcast, and nowadays there are more cases where all episodes have to be delivered at once. And the main reason for this is because they have to go through content check in China. It's necessary for this check to take place three months before the broadcast. In cases where it's difficult to be profitable domestically, it's essential to sell it overseas. And I can definitely agree with that, considering the international market and how that's grown over the past couple of years, especially with how anime blew up in the 2010s in terms of popularity and worldwide access, it's still kind of a little off whenever it comes from this kind of source. If we at the studio are told deliver all the episodes three months before the broadcast, then we have no choice but to make it according to that deadline. We don't have the authority to decide or how to do business with it. Which is definitely understandable, but also really concerning, especially with how tight the majority of anime production schedules are. And just for that kind of reason in of itself, it's giving them less and less time in order to try and go and get these out and try and make it a successful or at least put the numbers in the black. So, in the end, for me, it's not much of the fact that they're pushing the deadlines and the completion of the dates of the episodes forward. It's just the fact that they all have to be content-checked underneath all of these specific and rudimentary guidelines that are, whether it's through political or religious or sexual sort of content, it's really concerning that if the majority of these productions are going to have to go through and take the same content check over the future considering how much influence is with the Chinese government, especially nowadays, that's really going to be concerning if they're going to have that much power in terms of the productions that they're going to be leading through, that they can dictate what to remove before the episode even airs on their services. And that's kind of scary to me. But I guess in terms of looking at the industry's sales afterwards, their report suggests in the AJA that 6.5% fewer television anime were produced in 2020, which definitely makes sense. Even though anime films have definitely been able to thrive, especially through the fact of, you know, the entirety of um, the, <laughs> the movie that shall not be named, I'm pretty sure you already know, but it's definitely not really surprising to see that over the past two years, there's been a recursion of the amount of, tele of minutes in television anime that have been ongoing and produced and broadcasted over the past two years. Considering that the highest amount that went through over the entirety of the 2010s, we're talking about 130,000 minutes of television anime produced in 2018 with it dropping by 25,000 minutes to 2019, and still only getting about 4,000 more leading into 2020. Which I guess is slightly understandable, considering that productions that started in 2019 were definitely not going to be able to be pushed through for 2020 and 2021, but it's definitely surprising to see how much of it goes through, and I'm really curious to see how those numbers are going to jump by the end of this year and leading into... 2022. And in terms of one of those successful films that was um, broadcast last year, it is finally going to be able to come to North America. And even though this was expected to be put out near the end of 2020, I am really excited to see that finally the wait is going to be over by the end of this summer, and that is going to be the Shirobako film, which will open inside of North America on August 10th. It is definitely one of those original productions that really is able to not only showcase how 
much as possible inside the anime medium, but also give a little bit of an insight, especially along the production pipeline, as to how the majority gets made and how the majority of these negative connotations go throughout the industry. Although the majority of what I can say is, is that I enjoy almost all of the characters and what they're able to bring to the table, and considering that now, after over a year of potential waiting, this will finally be able to come over to North America, in Canada specifically, what I'm still concerned about is that I don't know if we'll actually be able to have our theaters open by August, but you know what? I was finally able to watch Heaven's Feel Part 3 over through digital access, considering that it was open to, uh, what was that, Apple TV, it was open to Google Play, and that I was finally able to consume it. But if this, if the theaters aren't going to be open by August, then I really don't know how many months and how long it's actually going to take me for, to wait on another film that I was legitimately interested in seeing come next year. And I really don't want to wait that long. And I guess a little bit more of a happy or terrifying thought, depending on what you like. Um, definitely something that was a little funnier to read in hindsight, um, especially when it came to um, success and how the reception of Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.0 has been doing. It was also released that the Evangelion's film staff went skydiving as research for one of the epic battles inside of the film franchise, which is kind of awesome in in my eyes, because the staff wanted to create a documentary feel to the camera work for that specific scene that they were going through. And by experiencing the real sensations for themselves, the staff aimed to create a camera work that was feeling not of an anime, but of a documentary-ish style to try and at least get it as natural and as free-flowing as it could possibly be. I have not gone skydiving before. I have gone bungee jumping several times. I love heights, and I would love to do this at some point, but... I'm really just flabbergasted to just kind of see that they actually decided to go through. I think it was actually Anno. Hold on. No, yeah, it was Anno. The staff went skydiving on Chief Director Hideaki Anno's recommendation. Considering that one of the scenes would be incorporating a part of the film where the characters have to fight while free-falling through the sky. I love it. Oh, man. Y you love to see it. At some point in time, I will take that upon myself to actually go through and experience it, but the fact that they were able to go through that as kind of like a work exception would honestly be something that I would love to do if not for just a job or for something in my free time. So considering that I recently finished one of these series over the course of the weekend, what I've been going through the majority of this, I mean at least for the anime spring season, is that I've completed the majority of the stuff that I wanted to get through on my backlog. And as of late, there were a handful of series that recently came out on Netflix that were that I was finally able to give a shot and finally able to cross it off my list and complete them. Which, thankfully enough, all of these guys came out within the same month, one of which came out on my birthday. Thank you, Castlevania. But that is essentially what I'm going to be talking through. But I'm also going to be bringing up a heads up that I will be spoiling almost the entirety of these three series that I was finally able to go through and consume and catch up on over these past few weeks. So, Yasuke, Love, Death, and Robots, Seasons 1 and 2, as well as Castlevania's fourth and final season. All of which were varying in terms of uh, bits and quality, but to be fair, I think we'll just kind of go through sending, just to kind of go through, which is unfortunately not the best way I'd like to start out in terms of describing Yasuke. I don't know, I didn't really expect much. At the very least, I was hoping for, like, a really like, good and mellow and something I could just jam to in the background soundtrack, something similar to Samurai Champloo, which 
Lotus was able to incorporate with the late Nujibes way back in the 2000s, and considering that they were one of the producers and sound directors for this series, I was really hoping for something a little more than that. I just can't really give it too much credit in almost any other area, though. Hell, I can't even give it much credit in the sound department, to be fair. Because not really many of the tracks jumped out. Not the opening theme, not the ending theme, none of the battles, none of the somber, none of the naturals, nothing that was going through Slice of Life, or nothing that was going through Heavy Heaved Battles. Nothing really jumped. Nothing really added anything to the scene, which was definitely a little difficult, considering that that was one of the only things I had expectations for for this entire bit. And if we're talking about the rest of the series, of course, a lot of people got a bit of total whiplash considering this was supposed to be back in feudal Japan around the era of Oda Nobunaga, where one of his only black retain no, <laughs> one of his only, one of his only retainers was the only black samurai or noted black samurai in Japanese history. And that was definitely one of the things that I was definitely more interested in. But then you get into the first initial fight going off of episode one, and it's got magic, and it's got mechas that were brought through by the Mongols, and the Japanese were able to use that technology on their own, and it's just never really brought up again, but it's only a reason to bring mechs into this entire series, and it didn't really, it didn't really give me many hopes for this being anything more than just an action romp with Yasuke as just what was supposed to be the glue to hold everything together. And unfortunately, the story kind of failed in that part in the beginning as well, because at least the first couple of episodes, a lot of it was went through flashbacks to show how Yasuke was found by Oda, and how he was incorporated into their guard, and what his relationships between the other retainers were, as to many of Nobunaga's siblings and children. But then you cut back to this present-day sort of deal, where he's this rundown nomad, and he hasn't seen action in over a decade, and he's just a boatman, and then he has to go through and get himself rescued by this one girl who's incredibly deathly and sickly and ill because she can't control these magical powers that are like popping up around her and by the end of episode three when all that gets sorted out she's just magically kind of better and i will admit that this kind of moves at a very <laughs> at a very uh quick pace considering that the first arc that we have goes through three straight episodes of trying to deal with the mercenaries and then we get one episode of traveling to get the girl to the doctor that she really needs who's not really a doctor he's more of a uh, magical trainer and then that's kind of at the end of episode four where Yasuke is going to be walking off because he doesn't want to go back into war and he wants this girl to be safe and he's done his job and then literally cuts to the next scene where he's getting rid of guards at a wall and he's going to fight off this entire force by himself and then he's in samurai, like, and then he's in samurai armor, and then there was nothing really much that I can do, in the sense that they had to cut a scene for time, because there's no transition to him not wanting to fight and and his like job being over, to him trying to overthrow the entire tyrannical motion that ended up killing both his entire fleet as well as forcing him to kill Oda Nobunaga himself. And I was just so lost that I had to go back and rewatch the end of episode four like twice just to figure out like, wait, they really did skip this stuff, right? And they did. And it's just kind of, man, I don't know. It, like it was every single anime trope that somebody decided to write into the script. And at the end of episode four, I was thinking, okay, so that means he's going to try and like find his role by the end of episode six. And then he's probably going to be going back into a sequel series where they finally had that end goal of trying to take down the daimyo. But it all gets wrapped up within two episodes. And it was like, I, I, I'm all for, like, 
incredibly, like, random, kooky, really, like, fast action-paced shit if I give a shit about the characters, which I didn't, because... Because all of Yasuke's interesting parts were in his past, and how a man of that stature were ab was able to go into the f into Oda Nobunaga's forces at all, despite the huge and intense backlash from his own soldiers and his own command and his own people. But it's just kind of like written off as, no, he's here now, we need to go and fight this big bad with Yasuke as the main, he's the main character, and I, I don't know, man, it was just not... It was just not really much fun in the end. I don't know. I was struggling to give this a four or a five. I, I, uh, yeah, I don't know. The, the major thing that I really take away from this is that MAPPA was, and this was another production that MAPPA was forced to do under all that Netflix money. And it just, oh man, it, I don't know. Like, it just was not worth it to like drag their workers through this kind of a production just to kind of get it all out within six episodes thankfully it was only six so it would so it definitely didn't take as much time but the fact that they had to work on this on top of everything else to get this out in 2021 was kind of ridiculous and in the end i was just not satisfied with anything that the show like put forward at the beginning or at the end either so of all the three that I've watched over the past month, this is definitely not the one that I would recommend towards anybody else looking for anything. If you were looking for any of Lotus's work, like go to Spotify and look up him and his collaborations with Nujibes, um, as well as just watching Samurai Champloo. Like if that's if that's the if the only positive thing I can take out of watching Yasuke is to just say, hey, go watch Samurai Champloo. You would not be disappointed with that. That I can guarantee. But the one that I finished most recently would have been the second season of Love, Death, and Robots. And it had been quite a bit, considering that I hadn't really uh, seen or remember watching the first season since 2019. So in this case, Love, Death, and Robots is a Netflix animated series that is, in, that is entirely episodic. Uh, that is produced by Tim Miller, Joshua Donan, and David Fincher, as well as uh, Jennifer Miller as well. And all of these are reimaginings. All these episodes are just different perspectives of Fincher and Miller's long in-development reboot of the 1981 animated science fiction heavy metal. And so in the first season, you ended up getting 18 episodes, which is why I was kind of shocked that we only got eight episodes this time around three years later, but then I realized, okay, no, it's totally understandable considering that not only is this not the end of it, we're going to be getting in another eight episodes popping up next year in 2022. So that's more than enough to be excited for at the end of it. And it was definitely an interesting, uh, like, callback to go back and through. Because being an episodic series done by, like, different companies through different countries with different stabs, with only a handful overlapping for a handful of the projects, whether it's storyboarders, writers, or directors, it was a really, really cool episodic series that I would definitely recommend to anybody who is interested in animation and CG and how far it can push the boundaries of storytelling considering that yes it is episodic and that's the only negative connotation i can take to it because i know that there are a lot of people that don't really like that kind of formula but because it's episodic there will be something inside of this anthology that you will love that you will grow to legitimately aspire to create at some point there's something for everyone inside of this collection and going back through uh at least recalling all the stuff that happened in season one through the 18 episodes that they had, the ones that really stood out to me on upon, like, revisiting. And so at least the ones that I would like to go through and check back in on that were the ones that stood out to me and a handful of my favorites 
of at least the first season. So you had the first episode, Sonny's Edge, which was a really interesting, like instead of a big mecha fight, it was literally big monster fights. Like legitimate genetically altered monsters who were thrown into a ring to fight for large pieces of prize money onside the black market. And it was really interesting to kind of see what kind of people were brought into those arenas and why they had to legitimately put themselves inside of that scenario to try and make money in this kind of a dangerous profession. Um, on the opposite end of the spectrum, you had Zima Blue, which was this incredibly interesting journey of an artist through a ridiculously large set of catalogs and collections. And how the artist found that kind of inspiration now that he is a universally renowned creator. And a really awesome, like, steampunk fantasy sort of merging literally would take place in the form of Good Hunting, which has a really good story in terms of the relationships between two characters on opposite ends of the spectrum of humanity and what that does to them inside of the world. The absolute madness and vision and style that is the witness. Whatever they were able to do, or how they were able to do it, to bring forth that kind of a style and movement and tension was just ridiculously creative and a sight to behold. And then probably the best action-based one, like, grounded but not so grounded, because it features literal battles against Hellspawn would have definitely been the Secret War. And the scale of the fight is relatively small in terms of the grander scale, but what happens on the ground is definitely intriguing and engaging stuff. And in comparison, Season 2 didn't really fill me with that kind of sense of wonder and inspiration in comparison, because overall, I don't think the stories that pop that were like propped up inside the second season could even compare it but it was considering that you know it's a pick of the litter and it's episodic and not really and not one episode has like that incredibly similar taste to another one that's definitely understandable so i guess the ones that i would like to point out i i guess life hutch because this is the first time I had seen Michael B. Jordan in anything in the past three years. I didn't see Without Remorse or Just Mercy, but it was definitely nice for me to go back and, like, see him, because I know he's just an animation nut. Like, this man loves Japan, he loves anime, and he wants to head over at some point and take a really good long look at the country and kind of see where a lot of that inspiration comes from. Pop Squad was a very Blade Runner-esque vision in a world where immortality has been figured out and what that means for the collective population of those who cannot afford it. Haha, <laughs> capitalism. And I really enjoyed the noir sense and the style and the grittiness of, of the world, especially when they go down below the clouds and what that means to the people that inhabit the actual Earth rather than skyscrapers that loom far, far above. But then... Probably one of the most interesting styles that I saw inside of this entire catalog would be ice through what looks to be kind of like a distant planet with different life forms, but in this case far enough based in the future that 
people have been augmented to a degree that they are on a much higher scale and caliber than people who are regularly humans, in the sense that we follow another 16-year-old kid who is quite possibly the only one who does not have those augmentations, considering that him and his family recently immigrated to this area and being the only one left out and trying to get himself and be welcomed and understood by a caliber of people who are all better than him, but it's something that he can't necessarily grasp, but something that he is able to come to terms with and understand, and to try to prove that he is worth it, and to be put in the same ring as the rest of these people on this far-off, ice-cradled, desolate planet. And so the show that definitely gave me the best feels and the best overall experience compared to the rest of it and compared to the rest of the seasons that it even had would have been Castlevania's fourth and final season. Now, this isn't going to be the final season of Castlevania as a franchise. They've definitely come to light saying that this is not going to be the final season that we produce, it's just going to be the final season with these core characters, with Cypher, with Hector, and with Alucard. And as a conclusion, a lot of people thought that it was roped and wrapped up way too nicely, I enjoyed the fuck out of this ending, because it was definitely a happy ending that was more than enough earned by most characters, because you see these, you see a lot of these happy endings just come out of thin air, where the characters are given a MacGuffin, or a deus ex machina, or something that kind of goes through, and invalidates all the hard work and strife that they were able to go through in, in the entirety of their story, and Hector is given this MacGuffin, but the entirety of the past four seasons and what he endured throughout his life as a child into his teens and into his later forms in life, him and the rest of his friends deserved the ending that they were given. And even though I was rolling my eyes at some of the parts, Bringing back the relationships between these three characters, which we didn't get enough of in this final season, and especially not in the third season in particular, but just seeing the fact that they were all able to come together at the end of this series, like, just put a really big dumb smile on my face, and, like, there was no other way that they could have ended it that way. There was especially one ending that they were pointing towards, and something that would have definitely been able to be like, okay, yeah, no, I totally understand, and I really do kind of feel like that is kind of the final outing that would be sorted for this character, but just seeing them all get off and live and finally find happiness and a sense of positivity for the future was more than enough that I was hopeful for, and more than enough of a happy conclusion. At least for comparison, in the entirety of Castlevania, it, the first, it's, it was really interesting considering that even with the only the four episodes that season one was given, it got more than enough of a positive reaction and garnered more than more than enough of a fan base to kind of go and get the second season renewed and at double the length. Considering that at the end of season one, we finally have our main trio, and through season two, the major fight against the antagonist that was this series, which was Dracula, and what that conclusion leads to, I was kind of surprised that at the end of that, we ended up getting a third season, because we kind of had more than enough of, like, a, the ending of the relationships that we thought and how they were kind of going to move forward in that 
Alucard was going to be the one safeguarding this plethora of knowledge and technology that was left at the behest and that now that Dracula is gone. But then understanding that, yeah, no, Hector and Cypher, they're both seasoned warriors, and they both have more than enough, you know, of a, of a good relationship with each other and more than enough trust to go through and continue adventuring with each other. It's just that I wish that they had some more time to banter off because they leave at the end of season two and they're not reunited until more than halfway into season four. So there was just so much time that they were on their own and having to like deal and learn with new characters and new hardships. I was like, man, I missed this. Like season two is really good and kind of seeing like how the characters evolve and getting new weapons and new techniques and new pieces of weaponry and spells and everything else. It was really cool to see that kind of, um, those kinds of battles go through and take place. And more than enough, the fights inside of this series are ridiculously well choreographed and ridiculously well animated to the degree that it's just such a well-polished and well-put-together production in terms of storytelling and character-driven narratives as well as the action that goes through and molds everything in between. And I'm trying to think, like, Season 3, Episode 9? No. Yeah, it was 9. The the amount of stuff that happens concurrently for nearly half an hour, there is not a single moment of downtime once the fights and once the major conflicts start going into motion that it was just an insane amount of content and an insane amount of just ridiculous and chaotic events all fl- like, flashing back and forth between another, considering that you had, like, like, passionate sex into ridiculous mob fights, into, into more sex, into demon fights. Like, it is just a brutal and erotic episode that all culminates into just climax on both sides, haha. But which ends in an unsatisfying manner, not because it was subpar in any of its departments, but just how nihilistic and and just draining all these events were to ultimately end up worse than where they started. And so not only do we have our characters not really engage with each other until like near the end of the final season, but how everything is pointing to them ending up where like worse than often where they were and failing in most cases and succeeding in part of their cases but still ending up failing nonetheless. And just the fights and the conclusions to the majority of the characters, almost all of the characters. Like, I, like maybe Lenore was a little bit anticlimactic, but it was just... the. I, I would say the fights inside of Season 4 were the highlight and the absolute bombastic conclusions that the majority of these characters come to the end and how not only it escalates through towards the final two episodes, but even improves and goes beyond what the series was capable of way back to when it was initially went through in 2017. I just loved this series. For me, I didn't jump into it until the second season was announced. I recognized the first one was out, but realizing that it was only four episodes long, it didn't really grab my attention in comparison to the rest of the stuff that I had on my backlog. But when everybody was going through and reveling in how ridiculous and bombastic the second season was, I had no choice but to cave in and watch all of it. 
and it was more than enough of a worthwhile introduction to the Castlevania series. But then what powerhouse animation was able to produce on this stuff with definitely some help from Mua Films and Tiger Animation, respectively. But this kind of story and production taken out of just essential knowledge of the characters and world, not necessarily following anything regular that the series had been building up to this point, considering that, geez, Castlevania has been around since 86. It deserves more than enough of a round of applause and complete revelry in how well and succinctly it was able to end on such a positive note in a world that is drabbed and infused and infected with hopelessness and despair. And the fact that even at the end of all that, you can still feel hope that there is still a chance for a better future for these characters. It did its job, it did it in spades, and it is a grandeur of a series that I would recommend to anybody in the future. So I'm thankful for all of you stopping by. The music in May thing kind of just pushed a handful of topics that I've been thinking about talking about until... the um a backlog for future episodes, which is definitely nice because now I don't necessarily have to go searching for new ideas. I just don't want them to get too stale being just settled around after I found and decided to pull just a random month of topics out of thin air. But at least I know that there is a majority of stuff that I have to look forward to, especially when I'm going to be going through and finding different ways to incorporate these into the episodes. Maybe one of it's going to be about fate, Maybe one of them is going to be about what we're going to be looking for in the next couple of seasons. Thankfully, I've got more than enough to pick from and more than enough of a handful of projects that I'm also going to be helping go through and push forward along the way. So, thanks for stopping by, and cheers. Cheers.